Hi, I'm Charlie Albone, and welcome to episode seven of That's How We Grow, in partnership with Still Garden Power Tools. Throughout this series, we've been looking to provide the best advice to tackle that large gardening project you've been putting off. Whether it's laying or repairing your lawn, preparing a vegetable patch, or pruning your trees, we hope you understand the steps needed to achieve this. Once you have the garden looking great, it's simply a process of maintaining it. One challenge simply rolls over to another. But it is an incredibly rewarding feeling being able to sit back and enjoy your garden once all the initial hard work has been done, seeing what you've achieved, enjoying it for all it's worth. Believe it or not, but for some, the maintenance can become laborious, which raises a few questions. How do professionals plan and prepare for maintenance? How do you plan to maintain a large garden, particularly an internationally famous city landmark garden? Well, joining me today will be David Lachlan from the Sydney Botanic Gardens. It's going to be great to hear from David around how he and his team plan and prepare for the ongoing maintenance of the gardens. For us at home, our plans are going to be on a smaller scale, obviously, but there will be plenty of nuggets for us to learn. David Lachlan has been with the Sydney Royal Botanic Gardens for over 10 years, and he is the curator manager. Like me, he has an interest in perennial borders, annual colour, and has a love for the Australian Asteraceae family. David, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about your horticulture career, please? And how on earth did you arrive at the Sydney Botanic Gardens? Well, Charlie, I I guess I started as every good horticulturist should with an apprenticeship, and I was lucky enough to get an apprenticeship at the Royal Botanic Gardens. Um, It was a bit of a career change for me, so I was quite an elderly apprentice when I started. And I did uh, four years at the Botanic Gardens, best four years of my career. It was wonderful working with all these amazing people, experiencing all aspects of the amenity horticulture industry. I then moved off and I worked for four years at Sydney University, another fantastic experience. I spent a few years at Centennial Park as well, again, and then I came back to the Botanic Gardens and have been lucky enough to come back in the role I'm currently in. So uh, I've been very lucky in the places I've worked. And what did you do before, before horticulture? I was in construction and civil engineering before, so it was a pretty substantial career change. But I figured that that, that was, as you can guess, I'm not originally from Australia. So when I was uh, back in Ireland, I was pretty much in the construction industry, which was booming back then. And, but then yes. when, I, when we made the move to Australia 20 years ago, decided I'll try something different. And my father always had a, an amazing garden and was a wonderful gardener. So mm. I always had a great interest in in horticulture and gardening, but when I was in Ireland, it never really dawned on me to actually do it as a career. And it was only when I came here that I decided to follow my passion, I guess. Well, Sydney is the perfect climate to be uh, working in horticulture and working at the Botanic Gardens. I mean, you must have felt like you died and gone to heaven. I did. I've never been more nervous in all my life than the day I had my interview for the apprenticeship. It yes. was. It was just, I just so much wanted to work here and it was, you know, such a great opportunity. And luckily... They took pity on me and give me a job. <laughs> you know, when you're designing a space, uh, I always have to ask the client, you know, how much maintenance can you, can you give the garden or how much maintenance do you actually want to give the garden? And then you design accordingly to, to that. Um, when you're dealing with a huge public space like the Botanic Gardens that's already up and running, how do you, how do you plan to maintain such a large space? Look, the principles principles are similar in that if we're designing a new garden, we obviously look at the resources that we can use to maintain that garden in the long run. Because mm. as you know, there's no point in designing an absolutely beautiful garden. It's a living, growing thing. And then not being able to 
maintain it to its best. So we do look at those those resources. We also look at the the type of garden that we're we're working with, whether it's a current garden or a new garden. And at the botanic gardens, we've got a sort of a hierarchy of, you know, if it's a if it's a garden that's linked to a science research collection. Mm-hmm then it's got a, you know, it's a very high priority for us to maintain those plants to a very high standard because some of those plants could be rare and endangered. Some of them could even be extinct in the wild. So those plants have a huge value. We also have, you know, conservation gardens as well, which are similar, but then we have gardens that our education teams use. You know, we get thousands and thousands of of children in yearly for, you know, to do courses and, you know, complete their education at the botanic gardens. And then we've got our horticultural gardens, which, you know, are basically those beautiful gardens that everyone comes and enjoys. So there's sort of a hierarchy and, and we work out our, our maintenance needs based on on the obviously the needs of the plant, but also the importance of the, the collections. So I guess the home gardener could uh, prioritize what's important to them uh, and, and sort of and that's one way they could they could work out their maintenance schedule, I guess. They should. And one thing I would say, gardens are to be enjoyed, whether you're working in them or you're just sitting having a glass of wine at the end of the day in your garden. So it's grow what you want to grow and grow what obviously you you have the time to look after and maintain is really important. Have you noticed a shift in the plants you're growing at the Botanic Gardens to a more drought tolerant varieties? Or are you sort of trying to show the wide variety of things that you can grow in, in Sydney? Look, we, we are trialling plants at the moment. We have a pretty extensive trial garden, which we trial new varieties on into the market. And and yeah, we're we're finding, like Sydney's climate is, it has certainly got warmer and some, sometimes the weather is getting more extreme. And that can also be, you know, drought or we can have a year like, uh, like this spring where we're actually getting quite a considerable amount of rain. Mm. Um, something I would say that's vitally important is drainage. So if we have good good drainage in our soil, most of those, you know, those drought tolerant plants won't complain whenever they get rain, as long as the water's not, you know, sitting around the root zones. Mm. But we are looking, we do, we do push the boundaries quite a bit with, you know, plant, plants tolerance for Sydney's climate. And as you said earlier, it's an amazing climate to grow plants. Like we can grow such a huge range of plants from all around the world and you know, with Sydney's really quite benign winters mm. and, and the summers, you know, there's a few days whenever it does get a wee bit, you know, beyond the limits but mostly the summers are pretty nice in sydney especially for us english and irish yeah <laughs> yeah well that's that's true yeah 20 years ago when i first arrived i thought this is where what have i done i've arrived in the sahara desert <laughs> yeah i think it's uh, drainage is so overlooked when it comes to to plants all plants like water yeah. they just don't like some plants just don't like water sitting around their roots you know rosemary is a great example of that you know yeah. It will thrive if you give it lots of water, as long as the water gets away from its roots. Exactly. And that's key. And I, I hate that sort of, you know, that zero fight term where they talk about plants like, like they almost don't need water. Every mm. living element, like water is the most important element. It's yes. the, yeah, it's the plants that don't like a, a wet, constantly wet root zone. That's yeah. But yeah. they do, they do need water. So how do professionals plan and prepare for maintenance? Like, is it a week to week process? Are there elements that are set in a diary, such as tree pruning, fertilizing, or do you just make it up as you go along because things change from year to year? Uh, look, it's a very planned process generally, you know, where there's certain key events that happen at certain times of the year, you know, like the the big one is, you know, we, we do our winter rose prune in July. We just can't, we just do our winter rose prune in July. In Sydney, mm-hmm. not such a big deal because usually the idea of doing it in July is that we, 
we give it the prune and then you know it's after the last frosts we don't really get frosts on the on the harbor here but mm. we still do that in, in july we we know that certain events are going to happen at certain times of year like one that's a big one for us as well is we we know that the armillaria is going to start producing its mushrooms in june so we keep an eye out for those mushrooms and our horticulturists report back if there's any new outbreaks of of what is a you know quite a destructive disease and unfortunately a disease that we we do have here at the botanic garden so there's things they got yeah and there's certain tree pruning events that happen as you say there's other pruning fertilizing events we look out for certain pests and diseases at certain times of the year so we can treat those at, you know at certain life cycles sometimes you can treat something and you don't actually have to go particularly harsh with a, a chemical if you get it at the right time and get it under control at the right time so mm. there's a lot of that but then also there, you know there's there's weekly tasks that in the growing season we just do weekly such as watering weeding those sorts of tasks and then there's yeah the the more sort of i guess seasonal tasks that are our are, are big tasks that we have to plan for and you know plan a number of people to come in and help the horticulturist in the section with yeah so i mean in the in the home garden i sort of work from the canopy down i guess it, the trees aren't, aren't every year i do pruning but you know your hedges you start on the tall hedges and you work down so the debris kind of works down you're only cleaning up once is that something you try and implement in such a big space as the botanic gardens or or is it sort of more focused on individual jobs and individual garden beds oh look we do we, we do uh, try to plan those jobs out because we, we also work in a public space and for things like hedge printing we'll, we'll only have a very small area you know that's fenced off so the public can't you know get into the I guess the danger zone so we mm -hmm. do try to clean up as we as we go along and and yeah you're right you know printing from the top down so there's there's less mess and it's a, a one clean up and making sure that you know there's not those ugly clippings on top of the hedge and stuff like that which is a pet hate of mine yes so, so yeah but but working in a public space is a big big difference for us because you know planning our jobs as well at certain times you know our green keepers certainly do most of their edging with the whippersnippers and that first thing in the morning whenever it's less busy and they certainly would never dream of doing a, a lawn at lunchtime also the noise mm. factor for you know people come out to sit down and have their lunch in a nice peaceful quiet environment they they don't want the the chainsaws going from the arb team or the whippersnippers and mowers buzzing around them so we yes. have to think about a lot of those aspects at the botanic gardens yeah, it, I guess it applies to annoying neighbours that complain as well. You, you need to work out when they're out to, to mow your lawn. You um, you, you touched on uh, the uh, armillaria issue you've got. How much of the pest and disease um, maintenance program is sort of organic based, and how much is is chemical based? Because I guess when you're working with so many uh, people that come into the garden, you've got to be quite sensitive with the way you use chemicals. Yeah, we do, and we do try to. We we sort of, I guess we. We reach for the chemical bottle as the last resort and as part mm. of our you know integrated pest management program so we use a lot of biological controls particularly in our rose garden so we we release various uh, insects that are going to eat the insects that we don't want and again we try to balance that where when we release them there's something for them to eat but the the pest hasn't got out of control um we we also like for weeds which i guess weed technically is a pest we've we've recently mm. trialed a steam weeding steam weeder and we're, it's still under trial so we're hopeful that that may be another thing another area where we reduce our reliance on you know chemical controls yes and, and we also obviously we do physical controls and and just ob observation and knowing when to actually control the pest or disease at the optimum time which means if we get it at a certain you know if it's a 
if it's a pest such as lily caterpillar, if we get it at a certain stage in its life cycle, we may be able to use a biological control. But if we miss that very small window and it's gone to a more adult cycle, then we may actually have to, unfortunately, use a, a chemical control. So yeah, there's a lot, I, lot of that stuff that our, our horticulturists are very skilled in that area. Yeah, I mean, last resort is chemicals, but sometimes you just have to, to use them. I think it's um, as long as you're using them properly, then then it's sort of yeah. it's it's all part of an integrated pest management system, as you said. I found with with weeding up when I uh, realised that weeding will never ever ever be finished, then it actually becomes a job that can be quite enjoyable. You can you can use it as meditation, sort of zone out. It doesn't matter if the kids come and bother you because you don't get it finished, but you're never going to get it finished. So, yeah. uh, but then I don't have um, I don't have the world's tourism coming to my garden and having a look at it yeah. like you do with yours. Oh, weeds are, um, yeah, weeds are the bane of our existence in many ways. And look, I always remember back to my days in TAFE and the teacher always said, look, if you haven't got time to wait, at least pull the flower head off and don't let it seed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of maintenance is is planning for, for future projects. The Botanic Gardens has got an amazing display of meadow flowers. And I know that because I spoke to you and I, I got the supplier of the seeds and I've, I've done them at, at, at my house. But when it comes to uh, bringing in new projects to the botanic gardens, how do you decide when you're going to do that? Because some of them can be quite labor intensive. I mean, with mine, it's it's laying the seed properly, keeping the water on top of it, keeping on top of the weeds before it sort of establishes. And it can become quite labor intensive, which I can imagine would be uh, one of the hardest things to manage in the botanic gardens, the amount of things you have to do with the labor you've got. So how do you plan a new project into your maintenance schedule? Yeah, look, we, we certainly look at, those resources and and the meadow as you mentioned it's probably probably the most popular thing in the botanic gardens at the moment and mm. it has turned out to be an amazing project so during that planning process we we certainly planned all the seed mixes that we were, we were going to use we we tr- we planned the weed eradication which for the first couple of years actually didn't work that well you know we had a couple of pretty disastrous meadows that were basically looked like an unkept kaiku lawn that had just been a <laughs> that go crazy for yeah. for a season. But eventually we got on top of the weeds and we got the seed mixes right and we got the soil preparation right and, the, you know, the the time to, to slash. And, and now the meadow is, I wouldn't say it's self-sustaining, it still requires a fair bit of work, but that maintenance and that pressure on the team has reduced down quite significantly with the mm-hmm. meadow. So sometimes that's a balance where establishing the garden is quite labour-intensive. But once we get it established and to a point where, you know, the plants are out competing the weeds and and various other, you know, aspects, there's not as much water required and, and whatnot, we can mm. we can then start to manage it. But but yeah, you're right. We only have a certain amount of resources in the botanic gardens to actually maintain the plants. And there's certain garden beds in the botanic gardens that are, you know, they may be mass planted with clivias and plants like that. But those those plants are not the most exciting plants in the world, but a horticulturist may only have to visit that garden once a month, whereas, you know, yes. a garden like the meadow, the horticulturist is in that garden working every day. So we, we do have to have a balance of uh, gardens that are still aesthetically pleasing. But, you know, yeah, that, that's a good tip, isn't it? I guess for your main areas of impact, have a bit more higher maintenance. And for those areas that are less conspicuous, I guess you could ma- you can mass plant. It still looks nice, but it's not going to be an amazing feature of your garden. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. picking the plants that are going to basically outcompete the the weeds and the plants that you don't want to grow is key. And yeah, mm. those plants with really fibrous root systems that basically dominate the the growing area they're they're actually really useful plants to have in the garden. 
Absolutely they are. What tools do you think every home gardener uh, needs and, and what professional tools do you think uh, home gardeners could use more? I mean, and I know everyone says you need a good pair of secretaires, but is there any other really <laughs> good tools you can recommend? Oh, look, yeah, look, most, most gardeners, unless it's a very, very small garden, I would recommend, you know, having a, a few either preferably electric or petrol tools, you know, things like blowers and whipper snippers. Obviously, if you've got a lawn, you need a, you need a lawnmower. Mm. But, you know, pole pruners, depending on, you know, if you've got a lot of trees and yet you need to do some pruning at height, pole pruners are very useful. Hedgers, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, electrical, we're, we're trying to move towards more battery operated, you know, power equipment. And not only is it, you know, it's a lot cleaner, it's a lot quieter, particularly in the public environment. But, you know, it's just it's it's the way of the future, I think, the way we're heading. But, you know, there's a lot of hand tools also that... Uh, that the home gardener needs. And you mentioned secateurs and I'm, I'm going to go back on the secateurs thing because it is the tool that you are going to use most. So if you're going to invest in a quality product for your garden, make sure buy a good pair of secateurs because they will last you a lifetime if you look after them. If you buy a $5 yeah. pair, they'll last you a month and you'll, you're out to buy another pair. So I'd I definitely buy a good I don't secretaries. think you'll find a gardener telling you you don't need a good pair of secateurs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But there's a there's a host of other you know all the hand tools you know your spades forks, rakes you know your hand shears all those things bins and tarps you know things to put you do a lot of you know you go produce a lot of weeds you do a lot of pruning so you need something to clean up and you know keep things in you know a really a good tool bag or bucket to keep your you mm-hmm. know your hand tools in so they're not scattered all over the place and do again, you um sorry oh, sorry keep going. No, I was just going to say, and again, you know, something to maintain your tools as well. You know, you know, sharpening stones, oil, rags, yes. all that stuff to keep them in good order. Do you um, do lots of composting at the botanic gardens? Because you you have a huge amount of green waste you'd produce. We we do we we send all our compost off site, so we don't, don't unfortunately we don't compost on site, and that's just basically because of space. We actually don't have the space mm. to create compost, but we do send all our green waste does go off site and does get turned back into compost and quite a bit of it comes back again into the garden. Yeah. What, uh, what common mistakes do you see gardeners doing in not, not just in the botanic gardens, but sort of in the home garden? What, what sort of things do you pick up on? Oh, look, you, well, quite often you see, basically the most important thing to do whenever you, when you first get a garden, whether it's at the botanic gardens developing a new collection of plants is look at your site, you know, know where the sun is, know where the shade is, know what the soil conditions are, you know, do a few basic soil tests like pH test and a texture test. And they're not difficult to do. You know, mm. if you have never gardened before, you can, you will be able to find a, a clip on YouTube that'll show you how to do a texture test and you can go and buy a pH t- kit. So do get those basic, you know, know what your soil is and then pick plants that are, are going to grow well in your environment. And, you know, for, for Sydney here, it, we always think, oh, natives, natives are going to do well. But Australia is a big country. Australia is a huge country. So not all mm. native plants are going to do well in Sydney. And we'd find that, you know, in Sydney, plants from the southwestern United States, some of the prairie plants do a lot better than plants from Western Australia that can't handle our humidity in summer. Mm. Or, you know, you certainly wouldn't be growing plants from uh, Darwin, you know, that are no, highly tropical. So it's about getting the right plant for the right spot, isn't it? It is. And, and if you just, it's interesting, you look at, you know, other parts of the world that have very similar climates to the area that you live in, and there's a range of plants that you'll be able to find that will be very happy 
in your climate. What do you think are the best low maintenance plants that give you that high impact? Oh, look, there's, there's a range of plants. Like, as I mentioned, the, the prairie plants, you know, gallardias. I think gallardias are hugely underused and mm-hmm. they flower forever and they've got those big daisy flowers that, you know, everybody loves. So they're particularly a favourite of mine. But, you know, some of the, the kangaroo paws available, particularly some of the landscape varieties, you know, like Big Red's been around for years, but it's just an amazing plant. It just yeah. keeps flowering and it does give you a huge amount of impact, you know. Limonium. How do you find it with the black spot and humidity? I find big reds pretty good for black spot. It's it's yeah. not. There's another one called landscape gold, and a, there's a Kings Park Federation Federation special. I think it's called. Those those three don't tend to get the black spot quite as bad. Some mm. of the some of the the smaller varieties with the amazing flowers, I would treat them as annuals, no more than a biennial, because they will they will eventually succumb to black spot. But right, they are they are wonderful annual plants to to use so yeah kangaroo paws a lot of breeding's been done on kangaroo paws and there's just such an amazing range out there today yeah i i found uh sort of when they finish flowering not just to remove the flower spike but the leaves around that flower spike mm. so you have a really thin thinned out plant but it sort of increases the airflow yeah yeah that's yeah, very important yeah yeah um so what can the home gardener take from someone who looks after one of the most prestigious gardens in the whole world Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, look, I guess the one thing I always say to everyone is I've killed many plants in my career and I think just about every horticulturist has. So if you start off gardening and you find that, you know, you buy this, you bring this beautiful plant home from the nursery, you plant it and six month late, months later it's dead. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a terrible gardener. It just means that, mm. that you learn from that experience and you learn about the plants that are going to do well in, in your garden. Um, I, I guess, you know, it gets back to that. Enjoy your garden, know, know your garden, know what, you know, know what your local environment's like, know what your microclimates are like, and then really start to enjoy your garden and, you know, start off with, you know, plants that, you know, and plants that are basic, take advice. And then as you get more confident, you can start experimenting, you can start, you know, developing your garden. But the most important thing is to enjoy it. If your garden becomes a chore and you hate going out to do the gardening, then there's something wrong. It should be an enjoyable experience. Absolutely. I think you learn a lot. I mean, I've, like you, I've killed a lot of plants in my time, but you learn a lot from the way you kill plants. You know, they, they tell you what they need. If it's, if it's water, if it's too much sun, and, and the more you kill, the more you learn that sort of stuff. And, and it just can only improve your gardening, I guess. Yeah, no, that, that's very true. Just try not to keep making the same mistake over and over again, I guess. That's, exactly. That's the big thing. Yeah. Yeah, what's the old saying? Uh, it's just, uh, I forget. Anyway, <laughs> so your your garden, uh, is it like the painter's house that's not finished painting? Is it the plumber's house that's got terrible pipe work? Or is it is it sort of looked after to perfection like the botanic gardens are? Uh, well, I wouldn't say. If you ask my partner, she would definitely say it's not perfection by any means, but... It's very small, so mm-hmm. that, that's I've got that advantage. I've got a little courtyard and I've got a, a green wall, which which uh, usually at this time of the year it starts to look quite good because I, I do a bit of renovations on it, you know, coming yes. in spring. And then by by the end of winter, it's looking a little bit tatty and I'm getting complaints. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it could be better. <laughs> is, it, uh, is it like the green wall in the calyx? Because that's very impressive at the Botanic Gardens. It is. It's, it's a little bit smaller than the one in the calyx. Yeah, well, you'd hope so. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's, uh, the one in the calyx is it's uh, 
we we use that wall to basically paint pictures um, yes. migraine walls a bit more natural looking and and it's uh, a bit more perennial as well because i cannot afford to keep replacing the plants yeah. at, at the rate that we, we do in the calyx but is it the the same system of uh pots clicked onto the wall or is yeah. it a yeah it, it is, is yeah it is yeah. it is that system yeah it's just that it's and an it's, amazing display it is and it's a wonderful way to grow plants particularly you know obviously if you're you're short of space and you know you can have a you can have quite a few extra square meters of uh of of planted area yeah and you you soon learn that once you you know put up your green wall and then you go to buy the plants to fill it you realize how many plants fit on a green wall because yeah, absolutely it, it's a uh, it's quite an expensive uh, exercise it can be i think uh what well, i think I, I did one system that was 55 plants a square meter so it's just yeah. you know that can really get up there can't it it can but it, it's worth it it's they're they do look absolutely spectacular yeah, they give you high impact and they, they really don't take up a footprint. So so they're a yeah. great addition to the garden. But David, thank you so much for your time. I do really appreciate it. Um, you know, you maintain, like I said, one of the best gardens in the world. And uh, I do appreciate your knowledge. Thank you very much. No, thank you very much, Charlie. It was a pleasure. Now it is time for some community questions. And we've got a couple of complex ones this week. Rosemary asks, that's a nice name, Rosemary. I have a Japanese camellia. Cape jasmine and a Chinese wisteria plant that I need to move in my garden. They're currently in a full sun location and thriving. However, due to renovations, I need to transplant all three to another full sun location. So my questions are, when is the best time of year to do this? Well, that is simple. It needs to be done in winter. If you're trying to do it in summer, these plants are not going to do very well. So winter is the best time, especially when they're dormant. How do I get the new location ready so they continue to thrive. So soil preparation is key here. I would rip through the soil, try and get as much air into it, try and get as much compost into it as possible. That way the new roots are going to find it easy to penetrate out into the soil. And with the addition of compost, it's going to hold on to water and nutrients for longer and you have a better chance of success. And the last part of this question is, is there one critical element to getting a successful transplant? And there is, and this is all about the root ball. You need to get as many roots as you possibly can for your plant. So dig the hole around the plant as big as you possibly can and try and maintain as much soil around the roots as possible because that's going to protect them. They're not going to dry out and they'll continue to grow. Margot has just asked, I loved listening to your podcast. That's how we grow. Loved it. Very informative. Thank you, Margot. The check is in the mail. But the question is, I put in new turf last year and suddenly have a patchy lawn. I saw a grub, which I think is going to town all over my backyard. What is the best way to treat this? And does it require once off or every week treatment? So you may possibly have a lawn grub. Now, what these do is they eat the roots of the plant. And by the time you notice it on top, it's far too late. Everything's been eaten underneath and you're going to get a patchy lawn. So there is a lawn grub um, insecticide you can get, which you apply to your lawn and it kills the bug. Now you want to be careful with these. You want to use it as little as possible because you want to maintain as much good bacteria and good insects in the soil whilst you're trying to kill off this bug. So I would use it once, maybe twice, but I probably wouldn't use it any more than that. Now, do you have a gardening question you'd like me to answer? Send me an email at charlieatstill.com.au. I really enjoyed speaking with David Lachlan today. He is a wealth of knowledge and he has a truly envious job working at the Sydney Botanic Gardens. But what did we learn from him today? Well, I learned that drainage is key. All plants love water, but you need to work out the ones that just don't like having water around their roots all the time. I found that chemicals 
can be used, but only as a last resort. There is a plethora of attacks you can make on insects and bugs in your garden that don't contain chemicals. So try and exhaust those first before you move on to the sprays. I also learned that even the best gardeners kill plants. But what you need to remember is you have to learn from your mistakes. Well, thanks for listening to That's How We Grow in partnership with Still Garden Power Tools. Do you need the power tools to take on any garden challenge? Go to the Still website or head to your local Still dealer today. You can find us on Instagram at still underscore au and you can follow me on Instagram as well, charlie underscore albone. On our next episode, we're going to be speaking with the acclaimed landscape designer and contractor, Michael Bates. Michael is a great friend of mine and he is an incredible garden designer too. We're going to be discussing garden planning and design, how to learn and work with your landscape and how to change what you dislike in your garden. Don't forget to check out Still's blog with plenty of great gardening advice, tips and tricks. I'm Charlie Albone and thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.